Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Well, I'm Pastor Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Again, thank you for being with us here or online. And thank you also for sharing in communion with us. It means a lot to be able to do that with you. As we um, wrap that portion of our service up, if you could do us a favor as you leave today, if you have the uh, container that bread came in or the cup with you, would you mind just taking it with you and disposing of it on the way out? Um, we'll take care of it if it's still here, but thanks for your help with that. Well, you've caught us here in part four of a series we're calling Free From That. Um, and in this series, we're talking about some things that we're free from and freed to. And I was doing some research and preparing for this talk this morning and came across um, a lady named Bronnie Ware, if I got that name right, Bronnie Ware, who's an Australian palliative care specialist. And she did some work in the area of the top regrets that people have that, ex that they express when they're dying. And so as she engaged with those who are on their final breath, basically, as she talks with families like that, she has put together basically the top five regrets that people have when they're on their deathbed, which is a very interesting read, by the way. And I don't know what you think might be in that. What do you think would be in that? What would be on your list of regrets, maybe, when you think you're near your deathbed? I think at some point in my life, it might have, when I was younger, I may have thought, well, maybe people will regret not having enough stuff, not being able to get that job, not being able to move to where they want to move to. Maybe they'll regret not being able to marry who they wanted to marry. Maybe they'll, I don't know, what will they regret? Later on, I think maybe people will regret not spending enough time with their family. Maybe people will regret not chasing their dreams. But here's what she declares in her research and her work, is the number one regret that people have when they are on their deathbed. They put it this way. I wish, they said, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life that others expected of me. Isn't that interesting? Now, this has nothing to do with God or the Bible or Christianity or anything like that. This isn't even a Christian statement. It's just a statement statement, okay? This is just what these people say to her. But it is an interesting comment, isn't it? Especially the last part of it, that I wish, take the first part of courage out and push the sentence together. What they're saying is, I wish I had not lived the life that others expected of me. Do you feel the power of that? Do you feel the power of what others expect of you? If you've lived life long enough, you certainly have felt that. If you've ever been in high school or junior high and had a pulse, you feel that, don't you? For those of us who are past that stage, and I'm just a few years past that, right? Like, I look back on those days, and I remember with great, um, you know, great detail the power and the pressure of wanting to do things that other people were doing of wanting to be accepted in the in-group. And I did things, right, that on my own I wouldn't have done because, uh, like, the power of that is so strong, isn't it? And some of our regrets in life right now where we live come back to moments that either it's people we've dated, things we've taken into our bodies, decisions we've made, nights we wish we wouldn't have participated in, that come back to around this issue of what we were drawn into, what kind of we stepped into because we thought, this is what others expect of me sometimes negatively, but also sometimes positively. Some people later in life, through college, career age, they wake up one day and realize, you know what, I am actually just a living extension of my parents' hopes and dreams for me. And while they hoped and dreamed that I might be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, 
No one ever seems to dream for their kids that they're a politician, by the way. You ever get that? But sometimes people wake up and they're like, I am not living myself. I'm living what my parents thought, and they never put that pressure on me. I just lived into that because I'm a people pleaser, and I wanted to do that. And at some point, people come to the realization that I don't want to just live into this life drawn in by the centrifugal force of your expectations and your hopes and your dreams that I can become kind of this compilation of all these hopes and dreams that people have in my life. So I get to the end of life, and the number one regret from Bonnie Ware is this. I wish I would have had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life that I was expected of me. Now, why do I bring this up? Not just for this principle, although it is a very good principle, but I want to translate this into your spiritual life and into the Christian world for a minute, if I can. I want to put it this way. Like, as you think about your own faith, as you think about how you engage with matters of faith, think about who God is and how he works with you. You think about, and I think about my own history. I would often do this. I would often, in my, my background, I would say, what I often did is I would walk into a relationship with God and think, you know what, I don't know necessarily what God wants from me, and so what I'm going to take is what others expect from me in the church or in the Christian faith. I'm going to live into the hopes and dreams of other people who seem to be good Christian leaders. I'm going to live into the hopes and dreams that my youth leaders have for me. I'm going to live into the expectations that maybe my parents or a godly adult has for my life. I'm going to live into the expectations of a church's cultural norms. I'm going to live into what I should wear, what I should consume, how I should date, how I should marry, how we should raise a family. And I'm going to take on the collective hopes and dreams that seem to be well-intentioned, that are well-meaning, but I'm going to live into the corporate pressure or expectations of what it means to be a good and godly person. And for me, I will say I often would translate that to feeling like the more that I do that is approved by the closest Christian community to me, then the more likely it is that God will find favor with me. In other words, I get right with God by essentially living out what others in the Christian world would expect a good Christian to do and to be. And this morning, as we get into what this ancient letter has for us to consider, I want to put this principle out there for your consideration. And then I want to get into what the Apostle Paul wrote. I want to kind of make this point and go from here, and that is that people don't actually get right with God by exchanging one set of rules for another, even if those rules come from well-meaning places. The people don't get right with God. I don't get right with God by taking the rules that I had for my life pre-Christ and exchanging them for a set of rules that I get after I come to faith in Christ. Even if people who put those rules on me come from well-meaning places, that people actually get right with God in a very different way. And it has nothing to do with exchanging my values for a better set of values, exchanging my behavior for a better set of behavior, exchanging one worldview for a better or more improved. How people get right with God is very different than that. The Apostle Paul writes about that, and he actually comes on very strong on this point. 
And if you like confrontation, you're going to like where Paul goes here. If you don't, maybe you'll squirm a little bit, or maybe you'll be glad you weren't in the room when he was talking to people. But I want to invite you to turn, if you have a Bible with you, to the little letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter uh, Two this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, not a problem at all. There's one in the chair near you. There's also, if you want to pull it up on your phone or your app there, you can grab that. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's our gift to you in the chair, by the way. And if you don't have a Bible with you at all, don't have access to one, or your arms aren't long enough to reach one near you, fear not. We will read it this morning, and you will be just fine. So Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, is where I want to go here this morning. We're going to go through verse 21. Paul is writing. Again, he's an early follower of Jesus, and here's what he has to say. I'm going to read a few verses and comment as we go. He says this, beginning of verse 11, he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas, by the way, is another name for Peter. So if you're more familiar with Peter and his role in the church, you can read Peter into that. So when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. It's a good start, isn't it? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Let's pause it. Let's get a picture of what's going on. Peter comes to Antioch and he meets Paul and Paul gets in his face and says, what you're doing is wrong. He stood condemned. And here's why. Because Paul says in verse 12, for before certain men came from James. That may not mean much to you. James basically is Jesus' brother. James is a pillar in the early church. James, of all the people in the early church, would have a tremendous amount of respect. He helped lead an incredibly important council called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. He was a leader and a trendsetter, if you will. He set the direction for much of the early church, huge part of that. People came who related to one of the most important early figures in the, in the ancient times here. And he came, and so Peter, not wanting James to think ill of him, decides, like, the people I used to eat with, I'm not going to eat with at least for the week in which these people are here because I don't want it to get back to James that I am eating with Gentiles, that I'm eating with uncircumcised people because good Jews, and we think maybe good Christians, don't do things like that. And so just out of the sake of making sure that everybody knows everything's in good standing, I'm going to pull back from doing something because I don't want the people around me who are going to give me the currency of affirmation and value, I don't want them to condemn me. To which Paul gets in his face and says, you stand condemned, my friend. What you're doing is wrong, and I would argue that people have been doing what Peter has been doing from that point on till today. I was talking with a local pastor just a few years ago, and um, there used to be, for those who were local to the area, just down Route 30 here, a few miles down the road toward the great thriving metropolis of Gap, on the way through, I don't know, maybe near Kinzer, there used to be a bar on the south side of Route 30. It has since changed into something else and into something else, and I don't know what it is right now. Used to be a tattoo parlor. Maybe there is one right next to it. That's where I got all my tattoos. But anyway, I digress. All right, so here's the deal. There used to be a bar there, and the, the pastor, local pastor here said to me one time, he said, Tim, you know, 
I have been under conviction for a long time that I need to go. I should be at that bar as a presence for Christ in our community because this is where many of our people go who are struggling and lonely and, and feel out of place. But, he said, but I am afraid of what people would say if they saw me at that bar. I'm afraid of what would come back to my elders. I'm afraid of what would happen in the church if, if we're no context at all. They see the pastor hanging out at the local bar that is known to be maybe not the best place in town. Now, he ended up going, but almost like under the cover of darkness, right? Like sneaking in. That was his conviction that he should go, but he was re reflecting, and you can feel the tension in it, right? Because you can relate to that pain, right? Like there's something that God might lead him to do, but he's like, I don't know if I can do it because of why? Because of what others might expect me to be in the expression of my Christian faith. To which is that's exactly what Peter did. Right? And it's exactly what this brother did for a while is he felt the conviction, but he couldn't do it. This is exactly what we dealt with. Many of you were not here. Years ago, we had a renovation here in the church. We renovated the youth room that's back around the wing there. It's a great, greatly done thing. We did not paint the ceiling black, even though we wanted to, because we were afraid that some people would think it would look like a bar and would be offended, and so we pulled back and didn't do that, because we were afraid of what some people might think. That's the last thing we want, is a situation like that, right? Now, I get that. I get that. But here, Paul stands before Peter, and he says, Peter, what you're doing is fundamentally wrong, and he explains why it is in the next verses. He goes on, verse 14, he says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Look at the first part of verse 14. He says, you are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. In what ways then was Peter living like a Gentile and not like a Jew? He, he was rejecting the freedom of the gospel. He was rejecting that. He was saying, we're not, we're not that free. We must follow some rules in order to be in good standing. He goes on in verse 15. Paul lays it out further. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So what Paul is saying is that Peter is living what he's actually living, the way his life is going. In other words, if the Gentiles, and they did not, by the way, they did not have a Bible to read then. There was no Bible yet. All they had to read, if you will, were the lives of the early followers of Christ, as well as the opportunity to hear the Torah or part of the Old Testament being read to them. But no one could open up at this point in history, no one could open up to Galatians chapter 2 because it wasn't written yet, right? And so the early followers of Jesus, they're reading the lives of the disciples. And as they read Peter's decisions, they're saying, oh, you're living like, and this is what Paul says, you're acting as if, you're acting as if someone is justified by the works of the law. 
which is exactly what people realize when they live with one another, which is what my pastor friend realized when he said, you know, I don't know if I could go there because of what people will think. As if we're justified by the works of the law, we say salvation is by grace through faith, but sometimes we act as if, no, we are made right, and that's just, this is that word, justified. We are made right by living right. That word actually has a legal term meaning there, and you see Paul use it in verse 16. He says, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. That has a place in our courts of law. If you were to go into the court system and you were to be facing charges and the, the judge were to say, do you know what, the charges are dropped. You're good to go. You've been cleared from wrongdoing. That is the, the term here. And so the question is, how does one get cleared from wrongdoing by God? And what Paul is saying is when we mix in this idea that works of the law is what clears you before God, we're mixing something that shouldn't be mixed together. He's saying you aren't justified by how you live. You're justified alone by faith in Christ. Now that's hard. That's really hard. He goes on, verse 17. And now it gets even more confusing. If you aren't somewhat confused already, he says, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not, he says. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Now, what in the world is he saying? Let's take this little by little. He's saying in verse 17, if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? He's bringing up an objection that everybody has. He's putting it this way. If in promoting justification by faith only, but what if you do something that is wrong? What if you do something morally that is wrong? Because I think almost, almost every culture in the history of the world, whether they're Christian or not, would argue, would argue that murder is wrong. Would argue that lying is wrong or not noble, right? There, there's certain shared moral principles. Are you trying to say, Paul, that all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and can I then murder you? Can I lie to you? Can I, now in this world, as a pastor, can I get up here and let out a string of four-letter words just because I have freedom in Christ? And if I can... Am I essentially saying that Christ promotes sin because he will forgive me? If I claim that my only means of justification before God is by faith in him, then what role does good deeds play at all, if any at all? Because it seems really wrong, and he asks that rhetorical question in verse 17, if we find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Is Christ now promoting cussing from the pulpit, right, for me? Is that a good thing? Is that what Christ would think would be beneficial for everybody if I just let it rip here Sunday morning, which I would never do, right? But why wouldn't I? Right? Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't you? Why would you not expect that? And this is what Paul is arguing with. He says, absolutely not. And he puts it this way. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker, what in the world does that mean? And here's what I think that means. There's a variety of ideas on this. Here's what I think that means. 
And this is, this is so powerful. If I rebuild what I destroyed, what is Paul destroying? He's destroying the power of the law. He's taking the Old Testament law and saying that doesn't apply anymore, right? I mean, that's what he's destroying. He's saying the power of that for justification is gone. But then what he's saying is if I rebuild it, then I'm really breaking it. What does he mean? Here's what I think he means. That if I'm going to exchange the Old Testament law for a new Christian morality, what am I really doing other than replacing the law, the old law, with a new, shinier version of the same thing and rebuilding for people a new way to find justification before God? If I create a new law that says, Cephas, Peter, you shouldn't eat with the Gentiles on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but Tuesday and Thursday is okay, all right? What am I doing? But I am now really a lawbreaker. Like, I, I can't even keep the law that I create. So what Paul is saying is if I rebuild what I have destroyed, all of what I'm trying to promote is gone. Meaning, if I take the Old Testament law and say, that's not worth anymore, let me give you a new one. Here's how Christians today need to act. Here's how they need to function. And when you do that, you'll be justified before God. That, my friends, is the power of peer pressure, isn't it? That's stuff that comes without words associated with it. That's how we get to the end of our lives and say, I wish that I would have had the courage to live the way I wanted to and not under the pressure of other people. That is the collective power of group culture creation. And it's not all bad, not at all. I've been shaped powerfully, and I think you have too, by some amazing people who have, I think, sharpened my leadership, who have taught me to pray, who've encouraged my spiritual life, who've taught me about humility and repentance and grace. And I've learned that not because I've just chosen my own way, but because people have impacted and influenced me. That community is great. But what Paul is arguing about is the pressure that we all feel in community to exchange one old set of rules for living for a new set of rules for living, and that this new way of living will make me right before God. To which Paul says, if you rebuild what you destroyed, you really are a lawbreaker, aren't you? And he goes on, verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And if you memorize verses, let me encourage you to pick up Galatians 2. 21. I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It was a waste. It is a waste if people think it, that their way to access God is through the cultural adaptation to what other people who are called Christians think that they should act like. Friends, don't you have people like this that you know that are friends of yours? Some who have rejected the church because they see the church, first of all, not as a place where grace and hope is found, but as a place where rules should be followed. Where first of all, that's, oh, well, you ever hear the term, oh, she's a good Christian girl, right? 
Immediately that has connotations for you, right? Because there's rules to the quote-unquote Christian girl, isn't there? And you know what some of those are. I don't even need to verbalize that for you. And not all of that is bad, right? <laughs> I'm not trying to tear down all moral and ethical behavior. Please hear me. But what I'm saying is some people have encountered an extension of Christianity, which is a cultural adaptation to norms or to a new revised law, but haven't quite experienced the grace of God alone for justification. And this is what Paul argues on strong. He confronts Peter. He says, if this isn't what we believe, then Christ's death was a waste for us. It means nothing. Just a couple of principles as we try to bring this down to the ground. I'm going to be honest. I have some tension personally in this space. On the one hand, I love the freedom in Christ that this brings. I love the freedom that it brings, but I will be honest, and maybe you feel some of this tension too. I struggle to know how then do we behave well with one another, right? What is the role of morals and ethics? How do we love each other without hurting each other? What does that look like for us to be both incredibly free in our justification with God and have the, the means of salvation be only grace in Christ and not throw everything out the window and just live to whatever way we want to? I want to acknowledge the tension in the room on that. But I also want to say that we don't invite people to faith, and this is probably my most important thought at least on this, and you can decide what's most important for you. We don't invite people to faith so they can exchange like a pre-Christian way of living, pre-Christian set of rules, for a post-Christian set of rules. That is too weak a thing to call people to. I don't invite people to faith so they can have a new shiny set of rules to follow and get rid of their old broken down set of rules. No, that's too small, too weak. We call people to faith in Christ alone for justification. A couple questions, a couple thoughts. We'll move forward. Number one, a couple questions. First one is this. Am I acting like Peter in any way? Go back to the story that Paul engages Peter on. There's some people who came from James, well-respected man. Peter pulls back because I don't want to be involved with something like that, that that could leave me with a bad impression, that could leave people with a bad impression of me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back here, but I'll, I'll engage here. Am I acting like Peter anyway in my life? Right? Is there any part of me that says, you know what, I don't, I don't tell anyone that I do, but I'll do this with you, but I won't do this with you. And I, Do I act like Peter as if, and what he's acting as, is that the law justifies my relationship with God. The more obedient I am, the more righteous I am before God. Am I acting like Peter in any way? Second is this. To see Christianity as the exchange of non-Christian rules for a Christian set of rules is to miss the heart of the gospel. And that's what I'm trying to say. That if we exchange, if we see Christianity as the exchange of non-Christian rules, hey, before Christ, here's how, here's how you should date people, and here's the new set of rules for how you should do it after Christ. Here's what you should consume before Christ, and here's what you're allowed to consume afterwards. Here's what you should watch and engage. Here's how you should see power. Here's how you should see authority. And let's just change those set of rules for a new set of rules, and then you'll be in and you'll be justified because enough people around you will cheer you on and be like, you're such a good Christian girl, a good Christian guy. You're doing such a great job in this world. To see Christianity as that is to miss the heart of the gospel. Christians are free from the law 
even a new revised version of it. Christians are free from the law, even a new revised version of it. Now, with all that being said, there has to be a tension in the room, and if you're engaging me at all, I think there has to be a tension in your heart. And it's around what in, how in the world do we actually work with one another then? <laughs> Is Paul saying, and am I saying, there's no morality, there's no ethics? No. There's an important question that I think Christians have to ask. Because if I'm claiming that there's all kinds of freedom, if I'm essentially saying, Christians, if you want to get right with God, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, if you want to be right with God, Christianity says it's not about conforming to any culture. It's not about the rules. It's not about finding a new set of awesome rules. It's not about that. It's about justification by faith in Christ alone. If that's the story and you're really free, you're really free? Think about that. You're really free. I mean, that's what I'm claiming, that you're free from any set of rules that comes upon you for justification before God. That's a big claim. A very important question comes for the Christian after that. It's this question. If you're free, how do I use my freedom? And if we can't ask that question, we will miss what it means to live in community with each other. Just because I have freedom doesn't mean I can do. Doesn't mean I should do. Not everything that is permissible is beneficial, right? Important question, and I want to guarantee you this, Paul is going to answer this question, and I will answer it with you as this series goes on. But for today, let me plead with you for a minute. Stay in the tension of this moment. Stay in the tension of this reality that people don't get right with God by exchanging one set of rules for another, even if those rules come from well-meaning places. People do not get right with God that way. That is what Paul got in Peter's face about. That's on the point where he said, if that is true, Christ died for nothing. It was a waste of your time to take communion this morning if this isn't true. That's what Paul stood on. And that's what I believe Bronnie Ware found in her research with people who are about to die. Oh, I wish I had the courage to live the life that I should have lived and not just to conform to the hopes and dreams and expectations of the culture and people around me. Oh, I wish I had that courage. I wish I had the courage to be free, to trust and to believe in the Christian world now that faith in Christ alone justifies you, my friends, justifies you before God, not in any way your conformity to the behavior of even well-meaning people or cultures or systems around you. And that is the power of the gospel, and that is the tension of the gospel, of how then do we live, and how then do we use the freedom that God has given to us. More to come on that. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the freedom that we have. And the freedom, truly understood, is a weight, sometimes a dangerous weapon to wield when we do it thoughtlessly. And so, Father, I pray for us that we can get down to the root even of our own assumptions about how we relate to you. So, some of us, many of us in the hearing of this have had significant pain around the church and Christians and have seen the, 
the church and Christians primarily as a moral force, an ethical group of people who have a certain set of regulations and behavior that they conform to, and that's what it means to be Christian. But God, I pray that you would free us from that vision, that you would drive us deeper into the grace of Christ, that you would drive us further to realize that no set of rules, no matter how well-intentioned by whoever, will ever justify us before you. And so for those who have heard or who have experienced the kind of faith that holds out behavior modification, ethical alignment as the North Star, as the biggest way that we can relate to you, I pray that you would forgive us who have been a part of that process. I pray that you would renew in us and give us a new vision of what it actually means to know the God of the universe, that we can know that we are made right before you, not by conformity to even the best-intentioned people and systems around us. That we're made right with you on the basis of grace through faith in Christ alone. Give us the courage to sit in that tension and all that it means for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.